Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. And I'm Connor Oaks. And welcome to the show that's uh, not afraid to tackle the controversial legal issues. We're going to talk about the right to die. We're going to talk uh, about... Certainly a hot-button topic. Yeah, California's changed the rules. Uh, used to be you had to wait 15 days before you could kill yourself uh, under medical supervision. Now, uh, Governor Newsom signed a bill saying just two days. So we're going to discuss whether that is a swell idea or not. A second topic, should settlements be secret? Uh, people don't like the idea of non-disclosure agreements and secret settlements. The USC entered into a controversial secret settlement recently. We're going to dissect that. And finally, we're going to try to answer a very important practical question. Why do people get obsessed with litigation? How does it take over their lives? What kind of weirdo personality disorders contribute to, uh, to people uh, getting involved in that kind of problem? And we're going to play America's favorite game show, Guess the Verdict, where Connor tries to guess the outcome of a real-life case. And this one, it's about a town called Drop Trow, Texas. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's just right. a little clue, a little, little preview. tease. Yeah, a little okay. preview for that. Before we get to uh, the right to die, a baseball update. Uh, do you think this is a little awkward in, in retrospect, Connor? The, uh, the Dodgers batting hero, uh, Cody Bellinger. Mm-hmm. Uh, was being interviewed after one of the the playoff games. Sure, gotta and, get his perspective. Yeah, he was giving a big compliment to the Giants pitcher Logan Webb, who was. Oh yeah, he had a know, great game. He did, yeah. Great and series. Actually, two two games, and yeah. I'm I'm zeroing in on the uh, the statement Cody Bellinger made. Something he's, like you know he's a real competitor. He put it all out there, left it on the field. No, uh, something no, like that. No, no, it was actually a little a little worse than okay. that. What he said uh, to the lady interviewing him there on the field after the game when the Dodgers won was, quote, yeah, he really shoved it up our butt twice. Oh, my God. <laughs> now, uh, I'm I, really, did he notice the microphone in front of him, the camera, How about the, person? the pretty lady interviewing yeah. him, the oh several thousand people still in the stands who were shocked. I think several ladies fainted because, right. you know, they somebody fell off the they upper put deck. on the PA system. Oh, sure. Oh, these postgame interviews. Yeah, I think a couple of ladies fell off of the top deck. Thank goodness they, they fell onto a giant pile of mar marshmallows so nobody was hurt. Ooh, but, I mean, come on, close. Cody. Yeah. <laughs> Don't they give you some media training when you're in the Keep major that leagues? on a higher plane, yeah, my man. Uh, that was a very low plane. Wow. Uh, I also wanted to run, uh, uh, riddle me this, Connor. I need your titanic intelligence to sort, okay. sort this problem out. I was walking recently for my little exercise. <laughs> okay. And I'm going by this house, and it's a lovely home, and it's got a nice big uh, lawn out front. And right by the curb, there is a, a nice wrought iron uh, fence. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, there are two park benches uh, in, in this yard. Now, okay. one park bench is just inside the wrought iron fence, and it's facing the street. Okay. It's just a regular garden variety park bench that you'd buy or steal from Central Park. <laughs> then they have a second park bench that is facing the first park bench, and it's on the other side of the wrought iron fence. Huh. So the back of this second park bench is basically right, it butts against the curb. 
So you get the picture, the one park bench, it's, you sit on it, you're looking at the house, and you're also looking at the other park bench. Now you tell me under what circumstances would human beings use these two park benches it really, on the front lawn? It really is interesting. that It the, bothers me. The, the, the difference, or how bizarre it looks, if there's a picnic table between those two benches, Totally normal. That's just a picnic table and right. benches. That's how benches work. But, but a wrought iron fence? The moment you put the two benches facing one another with no, no table in between, you're just sort of knee to knee with this other person. It's weirdly, you obviously, if you're sitting with someone, you both sit on the same bench. There's no reason not to sit on the well, same bench. To see each other and not have to crane your neck. Hey, hey, I have a That's theory. It. it just came to me. Uh huh. Whoever lives there is under house arrest. Oh, they can't leave the property, right. or the little thing on their their ankle will go off. Yeah. But they want to have visitors, right? And so the visitors show up and they use the outside part. That makes bench. so much sense. Yeah, I is, love it. If anybody has any opinions, and of course, if the owner of this house hears this, that they're going to be very unhappy. Yeah, that's I was just, I was just bizarre. kidding about the house arrest. Uh, I'm going to go sit on that witness bench protection program and see if somebody comes out and sits on the inside bench. <laughs> I mean, what else, what other purpose could there be but to put this bench out there so that you can sit there and wait for the mysterious uh, recluse who lives in this house? <laughs> I don't get it. To emerge. Uh, last topic before we get to the right to die. Uh, Texas's wacky interpretation of the Supreme Court's decisions. I don't know if you followed this this week, Connor, but it's pretty amazing. You got the ongoing abortion debate over the Texas law. Right. We know that what Texas uh, cleverly did in the legislature, they said, <laughs> here's the deal. Uh, no abortions after six weeks. And a lot of times women don't even know they're pregnant after six weeks. If there's a fetal heartbeat, no abortions after the six weeks when right. we might get, pick up the heartbeat. And here's the catch, folks. Uh, this is not to be enforced by the governor or the sheriff. And so instead, it simply creates a cause of action, a right to sue. So anybody around, the, pla anybody around the planet may sue uh, uh, the abortion provider, the clinic, the Uber driver who brings the woman to the clinic. Not the woman, though. We're not going to let anybody sue the woman. And because, so, the of course, they did that strategically as well. Sure, sure. Not only to take the power out of the hands of the government so that you say you can't sue the government to stop this also law from the sympathy being factor. Right. But also you can't sue the woman because that would infringe on her right to get an abortion. And on some level, the legal argument uh, is, well, she has a right to get an abortion, but the Uber driver does not have a right to facilitate yeah, an abortion but, under but the Constitution. That's really a lame. Oh, argument, yeah, it's totally it's an attenuated yeah. uh, argument. But yeah. it's, they're all weird, lame, attenuated arguments designed to tri trip things up and give the court, Supreme Court and other courts plausible deniability to allow the, the law to continue to be enforced. So we haven't even gotten to the really weird part. I'm okay. about to lay that on. OK. So we know that there has been a question uh, about whether or not this Texas law should be allowed to be enforced while the court fights, the inevitable court fights, play out. Yes. And so that has been the drama. Um, the lawyers for the state of Texas are defending this law, this Texas law, by saying that it doesn't really matter what the Supreme Court has said about the Constitution and the right to abortion. And get this, here, here's the filing by the state of Texas. Quote, the Supreme Court's interpretations of the Constitution are not the Constitution itself. They are, after all, called opinions. Oh, really? 
fascinating. So, so the fact that the word opinion is used to describe the orders of the United States Supreme Court means we can just dismiss them because it's just an opinion. It's just an opinion. It's not, the words aren't in the Constitution. They go on to say federal and state political branches have every prerogative to adopt interpretations of the Constitution that differ from the Supreme Court's, and they have every prerogative to enact laws that deprive the judiciary of opportunities to consider pre-enforcement challenges to their statutes. Abortion is not a constitutional right. It's a court-invented right that may not even have majority support on the current Supreme Court. So they're being very weird. I mean, they're just tossing aside the notion of precedence. Essentially, they're rewriting the law for their own purposes. Did they think they can get away with this? Ridiculous. I mean, the idea that the Supreme Court opinions aren't the Constitution is a hair-splitting distinction. I mean, yeah, that is not that. You know, left is not right, up is not down. But that doesn't, like, you can make those uh, arguments, but you, you can also see that it's a distinction without a difference. That if the Supreme Court says this is what will happen and that is followed and enforced by the government, that's called the law. There's no other yeah. way to interpret it. And yeah. anybody who's out here trying to split hairs um, is, of course, we know, arguing for what the political outcome that they want. And if that political outcome that they want is a good political outcome that will make the world a better place, then we can say, hey, look, they're doing this for the right reasons, at least. And if they're doing it for the wrong reasons, we can say, hey, you're doing that for the wrong reasons. But there's no, you know, there, there's no sense of you know, absolutes in the law, right? The law is everything is relative. Everything is 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 arguable. Everything is is fluid. It is just like the fact that our norms and our laws and our institutions all exist is just up to the fact that we keep putting up with them. So we have to agree with what kind of arguments we want to put up with. And if these are the kinds of arguments that fall into that category, I think that this sort of, you know, legalese hair splitting thing is is silly. I well, think we should be totally more direct. It's totally about, hypocritical because if they were in a position of defending a, a Supreme Court decision that wasn't Roe versus Wade, something they like, they yeah. would of course say, of course they, has, they, have, they have the final word. Right. That's the law. But the Supreme a, Court just says something you have to do it. But that's the problem, of course, is that the, 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 situ, the, the world is not the one in which I would like to live, where we all get to just put our political opinions on the table and say, look, SCOTUS, I know you uh, want to go one way or the other, and this is the way I think you should go. We should go this way because Roe v. Wade is a good thing. Planned Parenthood versus Casey are a good thing. We should protect people's right to an abortion. That's important. You can't have that conversation. You have to have these legalese conversations. And I don't begrudge the people on the the right from making hair-splitting legalese decisions. It's funny. It's it's fun to laugh at people like that. And on the left, it's it's fun to make fun of them as well. But it's because they're forced to play this game. If they were, you know— really uh, allowed to be honest, we could have an actual discussion about whether abortion is a net good for society and whether we should allow it. And that's the conversation we should be having. But instead, it's Amy Coney Barrett arguing about, you know, standing and and who's got this and who's got that. So it it allows for people to really hide. And uh, that gets into the practical issue that that the uh, critics of this Texas law are going to face. You remember early in September, right? Uh, some abortion providers sued the state of Texas and said, are you in court? Are you kidding me? You read Roe versus Wade. Right. And we want an injunction putting this law on the shelf. The U.S. Supreme Court said, sorry, we don't give injunctions in situations uh, where the defendant uh, is is the governor if the governor has no role in enforcing the law. Right. So it was tossed out. Now we have the state of the United States suing 
uh, the state of Texas objecting to the law. And they're going to get the same reception at the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is once again going to say, what, what don't you understand about yeah. the fact that you can't get an injunction against a law when the law is not to be enforced by officials? Instead, it's to be enforced by creating a cause of action. So, we, you know, let's just wait for a plaintiff to sue. Uh, you know, the, the, the prisoner in Alaska who's a serial killer is suing the Uber driver in Austin, Texas, and the, the Uber, Uber driver will argue that Roe versus Wade is good law. We'll go up to the Supreme Court. We'll see who wins. I yeah. don't know why they're trying this backdoor well, deal that's already been turned down. It, it really is. I mean, I, it's kind of I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to the shocker liberals in this situation because I think it actually cuts the other way. I think when somebody does something shifty and shady like the Texas uh, legislature and passes this law that is specifically designed to to dodge the court's jurisdiction to say, nah, nah, you can't touch me. You can't stop me the way you ordinarily would. You can't stop the governor. Uh, you can't stop this by, by getting an injunction against the governor because he's not involved in the uh, administration of this law at all. Well, obviously, the governor is the head of the state government and the state government is the apparatus through which you file lawsuits and and get court you know court relief and all that but separate from that you know technicality where you could argue that he's uh, therefore involved courts supreme court included should step back and go why is this law structured this way it's to prevent scotus from touching it you're trying to circumvent my power you can't do that i'm the supreme court <laughs> I, you can't tr you can't write a law in a tricky and fancy enough way that i just have to go oh well shucks uh, you outlawed me that's not how law works it, yeah. it's not it's I not mean, a game it's so idiotic because you might just as well pass a law that says you may not go to the public park and stand on a soapbox and uh, criticize uh, Joe Biden. That if you do, right. you may be sued by Obvious anybody. Free speech. And the answer to that is, are you crazy? Yeah, of course I can do that. do that. Well, it's the same thing. Are you crazy? Roe versus Wade is good law, just right. like the right to stand on the soapbox is good law. Yeah. And if the, if the way that you stop people from standing on the soapbox, like you said, is private enforcement, SCOTUS is not somehow toothless now. Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas and Alito and everybody else on this report should not be scratching their heads and going, oh man, they beat us. I think, like, think Breyer is toothless. Uh, actually, <laughs> probably no, just kidding. He's, he's, he's up there, but he still has his full retired teeth. Re retire, dude. Okay. Just get out. Hey, we're going to get into our uh, right to die topic uh, after a pause. But first, Connor's going to tell you how no, to rate Steve, Stephen Breyer retire. Uh, just just retire, dude. No, no. He's still very good to stay. Oh, okay. Connor's going to tell you how to rate and subscribe to Too Many Lawyers. Yeah, so check us out on the podcast uh, uh, app of choice. It's probably Apple Podcasts, um, and that means it'll probably be a button, a blue button that says join, which is a weird button for it. But that means subscribe, basically. That means no money, just get our podcast pushed to you every single week when it drops. Uh, we record these on Sunday. They get dropped uh, midweek. So you can look forward to brightening up your uh, Tuesday or Wednesday uh, when it goes out. Um, and we really appreciate it because, you know, it helps our little numbers and it makes us feel good. And uh, if you leave us a comment, uh, we'll read it because we read all of them. We'll be right back with Too Many Lawyers. This is Royal Oaks and this is Too Many Lawyers. And I'm Connor Oaks. So the right to die, Connor, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom has just signed a bill um, 
uh, regarding the assisted suicide law in California. He's changing. The legislature uh, changed, and he went along with it. The waiting period for a person in, in that uh, awful situation, there is a 15-day waiting period currently uh, after you get a- approval for the assisted suicide uh, until it may be done legally. Uh, and the idea is that will be cut down to two a day. So here's the background. Since uh, 2016, assisted suicide has been legal in California. It's called the End of Life Option Act. It allows patients to self-administer lethal drugs, which is an interesting twist because, of course, there are ethical issues about, you know, the the motto of the physician, first do no harm. Right. And so a lot of doctors, even though they're sympathetic, perhaps, to the situation, they feel like, you know, they can't really kill somebody, yeah. uh, even if the law seems to bless it. So, Here's the downside to the 15-day uh, delay. Uh, we're told that about a third of the last 400 patients who asked for such drugs died as they waited for the 15-day period to tick off. Now, you know, that, that's a factor. Uh, you know, you can just imagine the, there uh, could be all sorts of traumatic experiences involved. In those but, last two weeks. Yeah. Of, yeah. But here's the question. To, yeah. yeah. Cope with it. Isn't a cooling off period or a time for reflection a good idea. I mean, I, I'd be interested to know if they've done studies about whether people have changed their minds within the 15 days. Uh, two or three years ago, the California Supreme Court upheld uh, the legality of the law because it had been challenged by religious groups and so on. Um, the statement, the way it works, is the statement of a request for help in dying, uh, getting the drugs. Uh, the request must be signed and witnessed. The final attestation of intent has to be signed uh, 48 hours now, before self-administering the drug, uh, as I say, the Catholic Church opposed the bill. California, uh, when it adopted this in 2016, became the fifth state in America to approve it. You have to be over 18. You have to have the capacity to make an independent decision to end your life. Um, and again, you ask uh, for approval uh, for this concept from an <clears throat> attending physician and a consulting physician. If either of the doctors asks for one, a mental health specialist must be consulted. Uh, these doctors have to uh, have certified uh, experience in this field. So here's a one question I have. And by the way, it has to be established that you have less than six months to live. Right. Uh, and palliative care options have been discussed. I guess a, a medical science question I don't know the answer to. I'm wondering how often those estimates about six months to live are wrong. You kind of have a suspicion that if a physician really believes somebody should be allowed to do away with themselves, then perhaps they would give the estimate, uh, even if there isn't a lot of medical evidence for it. And even if you're not trying to uh, cheat the system, I mean, really, we've all heard it, it, anecdotal experiences where people are given three months or six months and then they live a lot longer than that. I mean, should we do something to evaluate whether uh, this estimate is right in the context of a, an assisted suicide request? Yeah, it's it's tough. I, <clears throat> I, I, of course, am not also not a doctor. And so I don't have the, the stats or the information, or the expertise to bust out and 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 say, well, um, you know, 98% or 96% or 92% or 70% or whatever of these estimates are accurate uh, and to what degree they're accurate. I mean, when a doctor gives somebody six months to live, um, they're likely not giving them uh, six months on the dot. They're probably giving them a whole nebulous varying probability range of 
of of death. It, it, doctors don't have the information to be able to say this is a six month disease or a three month disease. Uh, a, a lot of times, it's basically um, this is really bad. We can't do anything about it. And the, most importantly, your quality of life is going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until the end. And that's really what we're here talking about. You know, in in some movies we've seen uh, in the past characters get told, oh, you've got six months to live. And they say, oh, well, I got to get everything done before I do it. I got a bucket list. And so they mm-hmm. travel to India and they, and they skydive and they do this and they do that. This is not for those people. The, the people that this is for are people who are in terrible pain, who are suffering greatly, who have effectively awful or no quality of life. People who, as a result of that, turn to the, the option to end their own life. And I mean, it, the fact that you have this multiple doctor uh, approval process with the appeal to a mental health professional who can also talk about whether this person is just, you know, we can always imagine a scenario where somebody is is diagnosed and then are depressed as a result of that diagnosis. Yeah. Or and if there's coercion decision. by family members who maybe desperately need money and yeah. want to avoid the expense that uh, might uh, continue. I mean, that that's a, a, These are the a fears. serious that's problem. True. I mean, it's an irreversible decision. I mean, given the danger of pressure or depression causing a decision that might have been regretted, uh, I, I just wonder if it really makes I, sense to cut it from 15 days to two. I get I get what you're saying. I would say that there's also an irreversible uh, a consequence of additional wait time. And that it's and I'm not saying 15 days or two days are the perfect numbers. I don't know. I'm saying that we should be considering the perspective of the person who is p- potentially in terrible pain and wishes to end their life. That is an irreversible decision that if you say... Every day that goes by, you must survive through this. You must live through this. You must endure this pain. That is irreversible. They will never not be able to endure that pain. They will never be able to take that back, no matter you know what happens, if they're allowed to, to end their own life or not it, it, under this appeal process or whatever. That is uh, also a, a thing that we should be thinking about and considering. And adding additional safeguards... I get, but also recognizing that time may well be the most important safeguard if you can throw, say, money and effort and doctor approval and right. other things, but not extend the time to 15 days, then you know you can cut that down to 48 hours, but have two psychologists or a psychiatrist look at the person, have three doctors instead of two. Those are the sorts of things I would think because those, uh, you know, they may cost money and time and effort. Uh, on the behalf of the, the medical system, but they don't increase the time that this person is suffering, which is, of course, inevitably what we're really here talking about. Yep. All right. Topic two, should settlements be secret? Um, this involves uh, Dr. Pugliafuto. He was an ophthalmologist at USC. He was dean of a school there. And um, he got into some trouble. There were a bunch of photographs and other evidence of him uh, smoking methamphetamines with the convicted okay. criminals. Who hasn't? Uh, well, I had think, photos of them taken. I think smoking methamphetamines with convicted Mother criminals. Mother Teresa, uh, you don't one, know that. I'm very confident. I am also. But I know also that uh, I actually had uh, a close call because I was going to see Dr. Pulifudo for a, a retina tear issue. Like actually as a doctor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I had it uh, was it was recommended to me that I, I see him. He's a world world famous ophthalmologist. So I call for an appointment and doggone it, if he wasn't busy, they said, little did I know he was busy with methamphetamines. <laughs> Uh, but I was lucky. The problem was solved by uh, a physician that didn't have these extracurricular activities. Right. So here's what happened. Um, 
USC has settled with the family of a woman who, uh, who I believe died uh, when she did drugs with Dean Pugliafuto, and they settled for apparently a million and a half dollars. Part of the settlement deal, Khan, is that um, the, tele- the phone pictures and various videos of the, the, the Dean frolicking would be destroyed. SC said, we'll pay the million and a half. Part of the deal is you've got to destroy this evidence. So Me Too movement has complained. Um, a lot of people don't like the idea of non-disclosure agreements. Many people feel, well, you know, it's a matter of contract. If people want to freely enter into a contract to settle a lawsuit, and if they want to go along with a confidentiality clause, we may not disclose the terms, or right. relatedly, we'll destroy or return some evidence. Why shouldn't they be allowed to do that? Yeah, this is a, a complicated um, area. We have um, we have something in court called the subpoena power, in which uh, with which the the court can reach out to people, even people who are not involved in the lawsuit. Nobody's you know been sued, um, but even though you haven't been sued yet and you're not even involved, the court can reach out and say, I'm going to flex my power as part of the state. I am the monarch. I have the power over you. The Kraken. Exactly. You got to hand this over to me uh, on penalty of, you know, criminal punishment. Uh, if you disobey, we're going to fine you money. Eventually, we're going to jail you if you don't hand over these documents or, or, or physical evidence or materials, or pictures or whatever. So that trumps confidentiality agreements. That can supersede them because it's the power of the state. And so while you might say, I agree not to disclose something on penalty of contract, the court can force you to do it. And then you have broken your confidentiality agreement. Yeah, so, But what if before you get your subpoena, exactly. you destroy the evidence? Exactly. What if the confidentiality agreement says, oh, it's not just that you have to hold it and hide it when we, we know that that doesn't work because the state can force you to disclose it later uh, in some future lawsuit. You've got to burn it. You've got to get rid of it. You've got to take your computers and phones and everything into a, an expert and have them smash them with a hammer or wipe them clean or whatever. And that has, you know, dangerous implications that we should examine before we think about what the public policy should be. We, sh- we shouldn't just say, oh, yeah, people can do this freely under contract. Because, you know, imagine OJ is a good example, a classic evocative example. OJ is exonerated of a crime, right? We know uh, uh, after his criminal trial that there's not going to be another criminal trial about O.J. that night and those murders. There's only the two murders. There's no reason to believe years later that there's like a third body somewhere and a third missing person. But there will be a civil suit for wrongful death. Right. There's a civil suit for wrongful death. And so if uh, that civil suit then settles and there's a confidentiality agreement in that that says you've got to destroy the bloody glove or whatever as part of the civil suit settlement um, because O.J. doesn't want that bloody glove floating around found on eBay later Mm -hmm. (laughs) or whatever. Uh, Or just, you know, people to talk about it and see it and be able to examine it again or anything. Anything. Um, if they if that's the uh, the settle the end result of this settlement agreement, we don't really worry that oh no, a future murder case is not going to have the evidence it needs to go forward because this murder case has already been disposed of. But there are other kinds of crimes. Like, what if it's a financial crime that you have a criminal matter and then a subsequent civil matter over? What if it's a big, complicated case like the R. Kelly case recently, where you've got lots of potential victims, some of whom may have come forward and some of whom may not have come forward? And they say, or this guy who uh, this this, you know, former USC dean, uh, Puglia Fito, 
uh, was say he was partying with lots of students and doing meth mm -hmm. and say he was, you know, maybe uh, the, some of these photos apparently were of him in sexual situations of some kind. Who knows? Maybe this is a Me Too situation where the, the victims uh, of this guy have not yet come forward, been able to come forward, been willing to come forward, whatever, but might in the future. And the fact that you destroy the evidence that is relevant to this one person who was harmed, died, uh, doesn't mean that that evidence is not also relevant to the accusations of, you know, abuse, harassment. Yeah, it's uh, a tough one because you're balancing the interests. The parties right. should be entitled to cut a deal and yet it'd be nice to have full justice and stuff down the road. So who's the third party that gets to step into this weird confidentiality uh, agreement um, uh you know, discussion where they're negotiating what this confidentiality agreement will look like and uh, says uh, this might be relevant to a future investigation or is relevant to a current investigation of another person, another victim, whatever, and you can't destroy it. Do we have a process for that? As, yeah, as far as I know, a legislature we don't. That could pass a law right. that says you may not destroy yeah. any evidence. And mostly confidentiality agreements are private and between the parties and judges don't get involved in them. Now, there are situations where judges do get involved with settlement negotiations. There are situations where, uh, for example, you have a, uh, a conservator or a guardian ad litem or some other guardian ad litem is, is a, a Latin phrase, but it means basically this person is handling stuff for you because you're too young, incapacitated, something like that. So if you have a guardian ad litem or a GAL, uh, say you have a, 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 a personal injury suit where a child gets injured and the child can't really represent themselves in court, you don't just hire a lawyer to represent that child and trust the lawyer. You actually appoint a guardian ad litem, like maybe a parent or a relative of some kind or a professional uh, to represent, if there is nobody else, to represent their interests. And then that person deals with the lawyer because, you know, managing your lawyer, making sure they're doing the right thing is something that also needs doing. And a child can't do that part, even if we would like to think that the lawyer will make the arguments for him in court or whatever. So you, you could have a situation where after, like in a guardian ad litem situation, where if a child's settlement is negotiated for a hundred thousand mm -hmm. dollars and they, they're going to write that check and, and the, the defendant in the lawsuit who caused the harm is like, oh yeah, I want to write the check. Let me write the check. It's going to be a hundred K. It's going to be great. The judge steps in and says, is this a good settlement? Is this okay? Are you taking advantage of this person? Now, maybe $100,000 looks pretty good, but maybe the, the kid's claim is worth a million. How are we settling this, ca this case right now? Is this legit? Is this okay? Is the guardian and litem have a conflict of interest where they're going to benefit somehow from this? Does the other side just want to get rid of this real fast and, 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 and is, is giving them a raw, a raw deal? That, so that in sort of inquiry the, that the judge does could be applied to this sort of situation. Judges could start reviewing confidentiality agreements that involve destruction of evidence of any kind. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a solution. You mentioned the guardian ad litem is a, a Latin term. I, well, I thought, it was, I thought it was Esperanto. Are you sure it's not Esperanto, Connor? You know, I think Esperanto had borrowed a lot from Latin, so the answer is probably we're, very we're possible. both right. We're both right. So the other point you made was about the OJ glove, and that reminded me, of course, uh, now that we've lost Norm Macdonald, the uh, comic giant died a few weeks ago. Everybody's consensus favorite Norm joke is, is, is similar to that, and, and I'm going to lay it on you right now. When he was doing Weekend Update for Saturday Night Live during the OJ Simpson murder trial, uh, he reported and said, oh, well, Johnny Cochran uh, gave an impact final argument in the O.J. Simpson murder trial today. And as part of the final argument, he actually put on the knit cap that prosecutors uh, allege uh, was used. Uh, it's uh, It appears that O.J. undermined his defense because during the final argument by Cochran, O.J. blurted out, hey, careful with that. That's my lucky stabbing hat. 
the best, the best Norm McDonald. Norm got as you as you have have told me. Norm got fired from SNL and Weekend Update specifically because he wouldn't stop tearing. Wouldn't lay off the OJ jokes. The boss of NBC was a pal of Mr. Simpson. Incredible. Yep. When we come back, why do people get obsessed with litigation, and what kind of people get obsessed? Stick with us on Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. I'm Connor Oaks. So why do people get obsessed with litigation, Connor? I want to run a case study by you. A man Can't named wait. Bill, man named Bill Gross lives in Orange County, and he is a billionaire. He decided to buy a $1 million lawn sculpture and put it on his front lawn. And he installed some netting to protect it, probably from seagulls pooping all over. Oh, yeah. Uh, doggone it, though. The netting and the sculpture blocked his neighbor's view of the ocean. <sighs> so the neighbor complained to the city, and they issued a citation because the sculpture and the netting went up without a permit. So what did the very mature Bill Gross do? He um, started playing the Gilligan's Island theme song on an endless loop outside to torment his neighbor. Dear God. He aimed the good fences speaker right at him. It penetrated their home's concrete walls. It was like they lived in a bunker, but it didn't help. Uh, Inch and a half thick uh, concrete walls, dual pane windows. Uh, The neighbor submitted as evidence an iPhone recording of the music. So uh, Bill Gross responded by saying, well... Uh, I think I'm, our neighbor is just obsessed with us. Uh, you know, he shouldn't be videotaping us and so on. Well, the judge sided with the neighbor, said music constituted harassment. She issued a three-year restraining order that required Bill Gross not to violate the notice provisions of the Laguna Beach Municipal Code and to play music on the outdoor system only when they themselves are outside. So next thing you know, last July, Bill Gross violates the order. So the neighbor goes to court. Uh, the neighbor proves that you know, he's sitting in his bunker after TV, after 9 p.m. watching TV, and they hear the music coming from the billionaire's property. So the cops come out, the Laguna Beach uh, police come out, uh, and so uh, the, the matter goes to court. The judge actually visits the site so she can sit inside the bunker and, and, and uh, hear what the music sounds like. Uh, this is, by the way, Bill Gross bought his home for $32 million. Not bad. Yeah. Um, so you Gross, like to be that real estate agent? Take home 3% of that. And now <laughs> so, the, 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 do the same yeah. amount of work as I if know, you sell the Joe's Crab Shack uh, <laughs> down the street. Uh, Pro- but probably yeah. having, having to stage it, you know. Yeah, that's true. So end of the story, Bill Gross gets uh, sent to jail. Uh, two, two days suspended sentence, community service. The other, the three more days he has to go to jail if he doesn't keep his nose clean. So here, that's the weird situation. So what's going on here? Uh, some people have done studies of high conflict personalities, the kind of people that really just can't stay out of fights, litigation or otherwise. Mm -hmm. And here are some indicators of high conflict personalities. First, a long history of relationship conflicts. Second, a history of abuse in childhood or disrupted early childhood relationships. Third, they view relationships as inherently adversarial. Fourth, inability to accept and heal from loss. Five, lack of insight into own behavior. 
Six, denial of responsibility in contributing to conflicts. Does it sound like we're talking about some politicians that people uh, are yeah, familiar with? And some lawyers, I know. Yeah, well, too many lawyers. That's what <laughs> exactly. I always say. Uh, perpetual self-identification <clears throat> as a victim, projecting your own problems onto others, mm-hmm. intense emotions, overruling thinking. Um, th- the list goes on and on. Have you observed in your time practicing law that... Uh, you see some personality types of yeah. crop up over so and over? you absolutely do. <clears throat> I have run into both represented plaintiffs, people who have lawyers, um, their lawyers who have these same problems, and people who are pro se, meaning they represent themselves, um, who have- uh, Oh, that's the, Esperanto too. Yes, exactly. Uh, the, these sorts of problems um, where they are really using the courtroom- as a stage, as a way to get attention and as a way to get uh, an audience for their griping about how life is bad and unfair and wrong. And guys, I agree with you. Life is bad and unfair and wrong. It's brutal. It's it's really messed up. But of course, um, it, it, it contributes to, you know, a massive over overburden of the the legal system um, and theoretically could bo- prevent people who really are there for the right reasons to resolve disputes and actually keep the world moving and chugging along and get justice um, uh, from getting their day in court. Now, I think the problem is sometimes overblown, in fact, frequently overblown. I think that there was a, a mania in the last, you know, 50 years or a little less than 50 years, probably, um, that conservatives largely in this country have painted people, uh, you know, cherry pick the worst examples of plaintiffs who want relief from the legal system and then painted all plaintiffs that way. And I mean, I'm a defense lawyer. I'll tell you, I don't like the plaintiffs because the plaintiffs are out there trying to get money from my clients. But I recognize that it's important that we have a system that does uh, allow plaintiffs to, to seek uh, recompense. We just need a system that winnows them down to the people who really deserve. How about a compromise? How about a max, maximum a million dollars for a, a McDonald's hot coffee spill? See, that's a great example. Yeah. Capping recoveries for plaintiffs, as we do, we currently have laws on the books that say you can't recover more than X dollars against doctors in medical malpractice cases in California. And that- For num- emotional distress. Right. And that, that number- but. And that effectively becomes the big, you know, the big number. Of course, that's where all the money comes from. Or not all the money, but a lot of the money comes from. Um, And so we have those dollars and those dollars like haven't changed, for example, for 20 years, 30 years, whatever. It's still $200,000 or $220,000 or whatever it is. And that is effectively, you know, way less than it was when the bill was passed. And they didn't have a good enough system for, you know, accounting for inflation and that sort of thing. We run into these problems when we try to solve the idea of, oh, tort reform. How do we fix the tort, tort being civil system where people sue for money? Uh, How do we solve the tort system? Is it being abused? And yes, sometimes it is being abused. Absolutely. I've been on the defense side in cases where I get Pages and pages and pages of a pro se litigant who clearly has some sort of mental problem that's driving them crazy where they are typing out just complete gibberish nonsense, just over just pages and pages and pages and pages of accusations against a, a, my, a client. In my case, it was a, a, a you know, some random uh, person who was involved in a car accident, uh, allegedly. And this person's just writing out like, oh, this person's you know, targeting me and harassing me and trying to ruin my life and all this stuff. And it's like, this person clearly has like paranoia or like schizophrenia. And th- this is an issue. So in California, we have a system called the vexatious litigant uh, system, wherein 
people who abuse the legal system are labeled vexatious litigants and then future lawsuits that they file can be dismissed more quickly and their defendants can escape their clutches more easily. And that's a good idea to have that system. Guess what? We've only used it about a thousand times in the last 30 years. That's not a lot of times. Now, maybe that means we've hit the thousand most you know, egregious examples and that's good, but it's still not a lot of times. I personally, if I've run into one of them, statistically, I've run into several, but if I, if I had only run into even one of these people who really should be labeled a vexatious litigant and prevented from abusing the court, that I, clearly there are way, way more than a thousand because, you know, I have very limited, you know, a couple of years of litigation experience and I've already run into, into a few. On the other hand, the vexatious litigant system has been used, uh, put arguably, to bar people with legitimate claims uh, or people who are trying to use statutory schemes to legitimately enforce laws the way that the California legislature wants them to do or the, the, the federal legislature, case in point, the Americans with Disabilities Act. The ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, famous law, great law, fantastic that it is out there making sure that businesses and public-facing spaces are accessible to people with disabilities. And it says things like, the grab bar in the bathroom has to be a certain height so that people in a wheelchair can get out of the wheelchair and onto mm -hmm. the toilet and then back. And the, the, the counters should have, you should have a portion of your counter that is low enough that somebody who's in a wheelchair can reach up and, you know, use the counter effectively. Those are good systems. You have to have ramps, wheelchair ramps in and out of your, uh, your Walmart or whatever. There are lots of people, not that many, but a few people who are disability advocates who go after companies that don't comply with these laws and they hire lawyers and the lawyers file the lawsuits and the lawyers try to collect uh, damages on a per violation basis where the state, the, the federal legislature, when they wrote the ADA says, you get like 3,000 bucks or, or 2,000 bucks or whatever every time you file a lawsuit that says this counter height is not the right height. And why did the federal legislature do that? They did it to outsource a lot like the Texas legislature, right? Except it wasn't to, there. It wasn't to dodge, uh, you know, SCOTUS review. There it was to say, oh, my God, we don't want to have to like hire inspectors to go into every Walmart. That's insane. We can't do it. There's so many gosh darn Walmarts out there. What we should do is we should just deputize individuals to be able to file lawsuits and collect damages. We'll forego the damages. Obviously, I don't know. The government doesn't need the money. Individual people who are disability advocates can go out and file lawsuits to try to force Walmart to change the height of the bars in the bathroom to allow people to use their bathrooms. And that's a good thing. There are people out there who have filed hundreds of these lawsuits and hired lawyers and paid those lawyers effectively, paid them you know, a, a portion of the recovery. Sometimes they win the case, sometimes they don't, to file these lawsuits on their behalf to try to change the world for the better. And yes, they're also collecting the money, which is the point of the statutory scheme. And they have gotten labeled vexatious litigants. Walmart, with their massive, powerful attorneys, that's unfair to Walmart. I, Walmart does lots of evil things. Terrible, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad company. But I'm just using them as a placeholder for big business. I don't actually know that they've done anything bad about the ADA, but they're bad in other ways. Uh, don't sue me, Walmart. Um, <laughs> and they have used their power uh, to get people labeled big business is use their power to get people labeled vexatious, vexatious litigants when they're really just 
you know, ADA well, compliance disability advocates. And that's an important balancing act to say, like, are we over or under using this system? Is it even a good thing to have? I think it's a good thing to have. It's hard to know what the reform should be. Uh, but one thing is for sure, you get some mental health issues because people oh, yeah. who have constantly have interpersonal conflicts, they see themselves as a helpless victim. They're unable to reflect on their own behavior. They deny any inappropriate behavior. These people, you know, when they're in, in lawsuits, I mean, Frank McCourt, the owner of the Dodgers, uh, had a messy divorce with yeah. his wife, Jamie, and it cost $25 million in legal fees because Whoa. they went out and hired David Boys and fancy giant firms. Because they, they, he's they keeping the legal profession alive. They refused to uh, just go private. And if they'd had a private judge instead of the public system, the estimate I heard was that their legal bills would have been four or five million instead of twenty five million. Wow. So people have personality disorders. Hey, for we've sure. co- come to the time of uh, the game. Uh, guess the verdict, Connor. Are you psyched up for this? You know it. So drop I give trow. I give Connor uh, the uh, the facts. It's it's about drop trow, uh, Texas. Oh my God. Um, and you get to guess the outcome of this case. So here we go. A Texas prison inmate, Dennis Wayne Hope. You always have to give uh, three names because there are a lot of innocent Dennis Hopes out there. (laughs) Yeah. Texas prison inmate, Dennis Wayne Hope, escaped from confinement and began living comfortably on ill-gotten gains. But he couldn't resist sending a gag letter to the prison warden through whose fingers he had been able to slip. The letter had a return address of Drop Trouser, Texas. Is this a a clever con or what? Mr. Hope didn't stop to think that the letter's postmark couldn't tell a lie. The letter originated, and Mr. Hope was enjoying his freedom in Memphis, Tennessee. Soon, investigators swarmed the city. It's not drop trial at all. That's right. And they nabbed him in the Denim and Diamonds Country Western Club with $6,000 in his pocket and a lady on his arm. So... Uh, they have him uh, under arrest. Um, you may see this as an easy one, Connor, but what happened to Mr. Dennis Wayne Hope when I he had to go through the legal system I once appreciate again? that you are helping my batting average, <laughs> yeah, boosting me up a little bit. Uh, you know, I think that there's a possibility that on his return to the courtroom uh, that he that the legal system took sympathy on him. And um, insanity defense. Yeah. And decided that, uh, you know what, Uh, he's living his best life. We all wish we could have six thousand in our pockets uh, and a pretty woman on our arms. Uh, So let's let him walk free. Uh, Okay, he went back to jail uh, and the warden was not nice to him. Yeah, that is the end of the story. Yeah, you're basically right. I did it. 95-year term for, for robbery and escape. Wow. Uh, yeah, then uh, in Texas uh, and in Tennessee, I guess they take their justice very seriously. All right, well, next week, uh, the guest, the verdict uh, uh, topic is, is going to pose a serious question. Is being awake still a job requirement? Do you have to stay awake in order to keep your job? That's the huh. subject of next week's guess the verdict. Huh. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll see you next time on Too Many Lovers.